Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 331. We are so happy to be back to provide another storytelling episode. This one on a classic attraction, Space Mountain. But before we get into it, and we have a lot to talk about today, we do want to mention that this episode is brought to you by our friend and sponsor, Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. Hannah is the best person to help you book your vacation if you are like us in the holidays and winter makes you think, I got to book a vacation. So if that is you right now, we have a quick and easy way that you can get in touch with Hannah. All you need to do is go to detourtoneverland.com slash little bit of Disney. There you'll find a quote form where you fill it out with all the information that you know, your budget, and then Hannah will get back to you with some different options. She will help you plan absolutely everything. She'll provide detailed itineraries for what you might want to do during the day. She can do dining recommendations, Genie Plus with all the questions you might have for that. And she's just going to make it easy and seamless. And of course, her services are always free. So again, that's detourtoneverland.com slash little bit of Disney, or just scroll down in the show notes and you will see a link to it right there. This episode is also made possible by our Patreon subscribers. We are so, so thankful for them. All of them for this storytelling episode are able to read along with the notes and everything that we've compiled, all of our sources. And let me tell you, we spent a lot of time on this one. It was, you know, we've taken a little bit of a break from storytelling. Life gets busy and sometimes these are daunting to take on because we want to nail the storytelling. But I'm really glad that we did this one because honestly, I was kind of putting it off for a while because I really didn't think there was much here in terms of story. And I know people are rolling their eyes because we say this every single storytelling episode. There's so much more here than I ever, ever would have realized. Well, because when you look at Space Mountain surface level, it's a roller coaster. You are in the dark. You know that it is Tomorrowland and space themed. But like you said, to be honest, we kind of thought that was it. And this makes me think of an onion and the whole Shrek analogy where you're just peeling things back. And the more we researched and the more we just continued to look around and find things, the more it was just fascinating. Yeah. So we're super excited to share it all with you today. We are a couple of notes before we get started and deep into the episode. We are mainly going to focus on the Magic Kingdom Space Mountain. It is the original version We don't get to say that often. We don't get to say that often. We were debating beforehand. Do we want to talk a lot about Disneyland? And Catherine said, no. Magic Kingdom doesn't have a lot of original attractions that have been replicated elsewhere. So we need to 
focus on this one. So maybe a future episode is what we'll do is talking about the other versions. Particularly, I'm very interested in the Disneyland Paris version is the most different, but we only want to talk about things that we have experienced. So eventually when we get to Paris, we will do that. And then we can share a little bit of Disneyland stuff along the way because they're, they're, they're similar enough that it will lend itself to this conversation. Would you agree? I can accept that. Okay, so let's get some of the key facts out of the way. So Space Mountain opened in Magic Kingdom on January 15th, 1975. As with almost everything during this time period, they had sponsors to get these attractions built and ready to go and ready for the public. The original sponsor was RCA, and they held it from 1975 to 1993. When they dropped off, FedEx came in and held it for 10 years from 1994 to 2004. One more thing we want to hit on the key facts before we move on to history is that keep just make a mental note of this. The opening dedication featured three people in particular that I want you to be aware of. One is the chairman of RCA. Uh, you don't really need to know his name, but if you're from, if you want to, his name is Robert Sarnoff, the Disney CEO at the time, Don Tatum and Apollo 15 astronaut, Colonel James Irwin were all there and present and actually was Colonel Irwin who was able to take the first official ride on the new attraction. So it's cool that they incorporated that. It is pretty cool. And as we look at the history, especially this very, very early history, so many light bulb moments. Did you read ahead in my notes? I sure hope not. I did not. Because I'm excited. I'm all ears. This is going to be awesome. Space Mountain started with your favorite guy, my favorite guy, Walt Disney. He was actually the person who pitched the idea for Space Mountain in 1964. So if we think back to the date that Brendan just told us, Space Mountain did not open until 1975. So unfortunately, that means Walt never got to see Space Mountain come to fruition. But it was his idea, which is pretty important. It originally had the name of Spaceport, and he was working closely with John Hench, who was going to help him design and kind of bring this whole thing to life. Ultimately, the goal was to use this new attraction, the spaceport, in the kind of overhaul of the Disneyland Tomorrowland, which was going to take place in 1967. Basically, at this point, the park had been open for 12 years, and they recognized Tomorrowland is kind of not keeping up, and they need a little bit more than what was already there. And this attraction, specifically a thrill ride, a high-speed thrill ride, which is what Walt wanted that would have been kind of the key ticket in revamping the whole thing. This really is a theme that pops up over and over again throughout the history of all of these parks, specifically as it pertains to Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland Tomorrowland truly is such an interesting, I don't know, just concept for a land because of this whole, I know you're going to talk about it later, but because of the possibility for it to consistently be outdated. We'll get there. But Walt, even at this point, recognized we need something more. And this is when he had some big ideas. He wanted a thrill ride, specifically a roller coaster. He wanted it to have four tracks. And he knew it wanted to be space-themed. He was very much into the space age and everything that went with it. And unfortunately, they ran into a couple of snags, which is ultimately why it kind of got put on the back burner, which... 
we've seen time and time again. I mean, Haunted Mansion, that happened to Pirates, that happened to... I mean, all those things that Walt didn't have at opening, but he added during his lifetime, they're all kind of things that they worked on for years and years before. Nothing was like a, a quick turnaround. That's true, which is almost a testament to just how much detail and how when Walt had these grand ideas, he wanted to do it well. You don't just want to rush into something. You want it to be perfect. So the biggest thing that they ran into here, really there were two things, but the biggest one was technology. If you're doing a Tomorrowland e-ticket attraction and it's going to be space-themed, you have to have the technology. And it just did not exist yet. With the lighting that he wanted to do to simulate space travel, it wasn't really possible. And what it ended up being when they were able to create Space Mountain, it ended up having the very first computer automated roller coaster like ever developed. So I guess in the past, if we kind of think back to what we looked at with the Matterhorn, where they had to raise it up and they had to include the water as like a natural way of being the brakes towards the end of the ride. This was the first time where they were able to control it electronically with this computer system and even weigh the cars so that they could control the distance between each one, which allowed multiple cars to be going on the tracks at one time. Which is really just astonishing to think about. And I don't know, you know, it's unclear how far did Walt take this idea and and when did John Hinch start to kind of take it over and make it his own. But just to plant those seeds to know that you're thinking beyond technology, I mean, that's that's the definition of a pioneer, you know? He was one of a kind. The other big problem that they ran into was not just the technology – But because Walt's original idea for this attraction was to have four different tracks, that's a lot of space. And again, he did originally intend for this to go in Disneyland first. So short on space. Got to be quicker than that. Got Disneyland. Exactly. Which, if we kind of think about it in hindsight, it makes Magic Kingdom the better fit for it originally. Because we have space here in Florida. They did not have that in California. Oh, yeah, you said space, and I was thinking, like, actual space. Room. You're saying room. Square footage, I don't know, acreage, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, not, like, outer space. Yeah, I was like, wow, was Cape Canaveral, like, that big of a deal back (laughs) in the 50s? No. (laughs) No, it was not. Oh, We should have looked that up, actually, when we had Cape Canaveral come to Florida. But that's okay. We'll save that for later. Probably not. Maybe uh, Mission Space. Okay, Mission Space, we'll bookmark it. It rang the question then next, well, why did Walt really want to focus on the space age? You know, obviously Tomorrowland has a very futuristic theme behind it, but why did Walt decide to go with space? And it turns out he just loved it. He was just kind of a space nut. Um, Walt enthusiastic about a very specific topic? No way. I know, that does not sound like him at all. But... It kind of makes sense. So again, in the 1950s, which is the same time where he started coming up with this idea, the whole idea of space colonization was just massive. And again, thinking big, I mean, it screams Walt Disney. It just makes sense. Space and Walt, yes. It's almost like, which is crazy because we usually associate Walt with things like trains. But then to know that he was also very interested in space and science, it's kind of cool. It's like he has all these different personalities. Yeah. And skiing. 
and skiing. Yeah, he was a man of many talents. I don't know. How, did he ever sleep? Maybe that's why he loved coffee. <laughs> Probably right. Because I don't know if he ever slept. But particularly, he was interested in space and one scientist. So it was Dr. Werner von Braun. We're going to talk about him an awful lot. This dude had an interesting past. He was originally a Nazi rocket scientist, which is a little cringeworthy, until he turned into a recruit for the U.S. Army after World War II. I like how you just said Nazis are cringeworthy. I think they're a little worse than cringeworthy. Well, I mean, obviously, but... A little problematic. More than problematic. But nonetheless, he ends up working for the United States Army, again, specifically in their space colonization kind of efforts. We're going to get into all those details. But what Walt was interested in is that Von Braun wrote articles in these magazines that were published weekly called The Colliers. And it was all about futurism. It was all about, you know, going to Mars. What could this look like? What is the future in space? Because more and more people were starting to talk about it. And Walt just became very interested in what Von Braun had to say. And this is when he decided to kind of incorporate that into Tomorrowland. So this is starting way back in 1955. We're kind of starting from the beginning now with Von Braun. So I apologize if I'm reading ahead on your notes, but I feel like maybe our listeners and and myself, I'm thinking, is this the early seeds of where Epcot got planted in his mind? Quite possibly. With the futuristic and a new way of living and just a different way of thinking. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if everything with Tomorrowland and specifically his interest in space would have influenced Epcot. Yeah. I mean, because all about sustainability and basically creating your own little colony. Just what could the future look like? Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. You're not looking ahead in my notes. That was a good point. Yeah, good. So when we look at Walt's work, so we're going to take it even a step farther back, right? If we look at 1940, Fantasia released, there are two iconic space scenes in Fantasia that we're going to reference back to. The first one, you have Apollo, the Greek god, flying in his chariot, riding in the sunset. So Apollo, sun, Greek gods, makes sense. Are you still following? Yeah. The second scene was specifically called the Rite of Spring, and it showed these beautiful views of space. And at this time in the 40s when Fantasia released, no one was really thinking about space. And it definitely preceded what anyone would have ever been able to see of space, just like different views. It was obviously not realistic, like you didn't have a camera up there or anything, but it was just a different vantage point, something that no one had never thought about or seen before. So it's showing us in the 40s that Walt was already intrigued in space. Which is just crazy to me that now 80 years later, where we're at with space. I mean, how much that area of science has progressed in a very, very short period of time, like 80 years. It's pretty nuts. That's true, because everything happened very quickly, if you think about it, as far as timelines with getting the first person on the moon. And then from there, kind of stalled out. Now we're going to the moon next year, right? We're oh my gosh. Book a commercial flight. Now I'd like to get to Greece first, maybe. 
That might be the first place Maybe I'm trying to go. Maybe we can stop on the way. Disneyland Paris. We have a few places on the list. But then from there, Walt started his Disneyland program for TV in October of 1954. And specifically in this Disneyland program, he was highlighting all of the new lands. So, you know, Adventureland, Fantasyland, Tomorrowland. And of course, for Tomorrowland, Walt starts thinking, well, what can I highlight? You know, this is a futuristic world of tomorrow. What do I possibly talk about? And space was the first thing that came to his mind. So he enlisted Ward Kimball, we've talked about him before, to create what he called a science factual program, which was going to highlight Tomorrowland and everything that was to come with Tomorrowland. And what was so interesting about this is it was its own genre, because obviously it it was kind of the perfect mix of what we've talked about before with you're mixing the story with something that's real to really engage people. There was another word that we used for it in the past. Do you remember what it was? Immersion? No. Gosh, now it's going to drive me crazy. Edutainment. That's it. It was almost like his original edutainment. And they were specifically focused on the possibility of just human space exploration. So it's mixing what we know about space, the fact that space is super popular right now and kind of the space race and who's going to get there first, but then also just the imagination and the creativity of what is possible. So in Walt's own words, as he is describing kind of what this highlighted Tomorrowland program is going to be, he says, we are known for fantasy, but with these same tools that we use here, we apply it to the facts and give it a presentation. I think that's very important for these series, a science factual presentation. And with that, Ward Kimball created three different one-hour Tomorrowland programs that were ultimately made about space. So in 1955, they created Man in Space. Again, in 1955, they created Man in the Moon. And then in 1957, they had Mars and Beyond with that kind of edutainment, science factual theming to it. As things progress in history and we start to see Sputnik and things are really kicking off. Um, Lyndon Johnson is being put in charge of NASA and starting this program. Um, President Eisenhower started to request that man in space, Walt Disney's edutainment, fantasy, factual, whatever you category you want to put in it is being screened at the Pentagon as what Walt, what Ward Kimball described as an education space primer. Can you imagine that? Like they are going to Walt Disney. Now, Walt Disney was working with Von Buren. I don't know if I mentioned that specifically, Ugh. but they they were working together. Don't like that. Von, oh, they were buds at this point in time. They're very close. They're creating these series together. Um, Von Buren worked on other, you know, Hollywood movies and anything about space at that time because he was almost considered like the go-to guy, like he's the expert. So Walt is getting his information from the person who's considered to be the expert. And I guess this is maybe a good time to just point out that we are not blind to the fact that there are parts of Walt Disney and his history that are not always shining, shimmering, splendid. But as a whole, we are very appreciative of his contributions. Is that a good way of saying it, you think? I think so. Okay. You're not into my space history? No, I am. I just don't want it to be confused of that we are in support of Von Buren. Oh, well, no. Yeah. But that's just kind of how all this came to be. 
So we're just talking about it. It's the history. Maybe we can view it as Walt was just using him for his knowledge. I'll use that. Well, obviously the U.S. was too, because in 1958, when NASA was formed, Von Braun was called in as a consultant. So now NASA and Von Braun are working together. So he stops working with Disney so that he can work with NASA because, hello. And they start working on a program that they called Apollo. This is where you should start making connections. So NASA director, Dr. Abe Silverstein, starts talking about how the image of Apollo riding his chariot across the sun was in the same league to describe how NASA was this grand scale and how it was going to change everything. So they're starting to take what Walt Disney created in 1940 and they are mirroring it to what is happening in NASA. It's freaking NASA. And I just think that's amazing. I like to think that Walt's kind of ideas just ingrained that into their brains and they couldn't let it go. And then they also started to tie in, oh, well, Greek, you know, mythology and everything, they use a lot of those terms for space anyway. So I think that's how they were tying it in. But I like to think it's Walt. Between this and Eternals, we're going to turn into a Greek mythology podcast pretty quickly. I would be in support of that. You know I love that. So then in 1965, if we're still following the story here, Walt was invited by Von Braun to visit the Marshall Space Flight Center to see their new development of Apollo the first in hopes that it would spark this new creativity or this new desire in Walt to continue to make more content about space because they're starting to recognize the influence that Walt has, specifically the influence that he has with television and just getting people engaged and getting people interested. And Walt, I like this quote too, during this time when they're trying to entice him, he says to a reporter during that visit that if I can help through my TV shows to wake people up to the fact that we've got to keep exploring, I'll do it. So they're almost reaching out to him. It's kind of similar to um, what was that documentary that we watched where he went, where Walt was sent to South America? Oh, yeah. Something Walt and El Grupo? Yes, I believe that's it. So it's, it's on Disney Plus. It's interesting that they that there's been several times throughout history where they're reaching out to Walt almost as like a bridge between the general public and kind of what's going on because he's such a familiar face and they recognize his influence. And again, not to take it to a tangent too far off, but I have seen things like this mentioned before, and especially if, as you apply it to today's age where people say that Disney makes sort of propaganda. And it's like, kind of yes. The answer is yes, but it's always something that they believe in, that they do use their content to try to influence people. And I think it's interesting, especially during that time, Walt does not hide behind that by any means. It's not subtle. He's saying, I can help people and wake people up to this issue. And that's exactly what he said. Yeah, I'll keep doing it. If if me hyping the people up is what it's going to take to get people excited about this, get people behind this, make you know children interested so they want to go into that field someday, I'll do it. I'm your guy. And kind of my thought on that is that now I do think as society changes and as we you know create a better world for everybody to live in, I do think 
Disney and and the role of entertainment plays a role in that. I mean, I would agree. We're seeing it in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I feel like there's no way it's not evident today or prevalent today, I guess I should say. So unfortunately, Walt died in 1966 and he didn't actually get to see Space Mountain play out, but he also didn't get to see the Apollo project play out. However, Ward Kimball and Von Braun did. And because they worked so closely together as they were creating those different episodes for Tomorrowland, they stayed in touch and they were always impressed with kind of how they were able to depict space and space travel back in the fifties. Like it was so kind of uncanny how closely related they were that after the astronauts orbited the moon on the Apollo eight mission, Von Braun called Ward Kimball and said, quote, they're following our script. Like, look how accurate this was. Not that like, like predicted the future or anything crazy, but it's almost like, look at this dream. Like, look at, we, we knew this was possible or we hoped this was possible and kind of look how this is playing out. I mean, can you imagine how excited Walt Disney would have been to see something like that? I mean, I'm, my gosh. I'm going to say something that's going to annoy you. What? But the, peop- the naysayers to say that we never landed on the moon people are jumping up and down right now. Where you say they're following our script. I, that, those were Von Braun's words, I know, not I'm just, mine. I know, I'm just saying. I interpret it to be like, look how uncanny it is. I don't know. I'm just saying. Oh, well, you know I'm not into all that. <laughs> I know. That's why I said you would be annoyed by it. But <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm pointing it out. If there are any moon naysayers listening, it's right there. It's right in front of you. Oh, my goodness. For the record, I do think we landed on the moon. But. Thank you for clearing that up for us. The last little part that I want to throw in about Apollo, and again, I just love the fact that they call it Apollo. I will always equate that to Walt Disney now. But the live television broadcast of the Apollo 11 Moon landing was actually screened on a stage in Tomorrowland in July 20th, 1969, so that all the guests could see it. And I don't know. I mean, how incredible is that? It kind of came full circle. Man, I would love to talk to someone who was there and watched it in Disneyland. That would be really cool. And I like now I, you know, to tie it into another attraction, I love that that is depicted in Spaceship Earth. Mm-hmm. It's a very monumental moment in communication. Just a big deal in general. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of ties it up. So I think when we look at Space Mountain as a whole, I think now we kind of understand more of why did we go with this theming? It wasn't by chance. It wasn't just because it's Tomorrowland. But Walt did have a genuine interest in space and I mean, I think it's kind of cool. It started in the 40s and it carried, I mean, it's still kind of carrying through. Yeah. Especially if you look at uh, Space 220. They got it. I feel like Walt would love that. Oh, yeah. He, well, he would probably vomit from it being sensory overload. But <laughs> probably. If you, after you gave him some time to adjust, he'd probably be it okay. It's a high, you know, elevation. Yeah. Get a little dizzy. 220 up. miles, actually. Yeah, you might get a little dizzy up there. So Catherine covered all of the history and how Walt kind of planted those early seeds and how it lends itself into the story of Space Mountain. What I want to tackle next is some of the 
more recent history right before Space Mountain was able to be built and some of the strings that were being pulled in order to make it possible. So we've talked about it for a lot of attractions in the past, particularly a lot of Epcot attractions dealt with this, but this one was the same one and we mentioned it before, is that finding a sponsor was a lot of times the initial thing that had to be done. So there were other things like we mentioned before, like they needed technology to advance and they needed to find the space to do something like this. Square footage. Yeah, the acreage, (laughs) the, the free available space in order to do it. But then on top of that, this was not something that they could fund themselves. They need a partner to go into it. And so we mentioned that RCA was that original sponsor. So I want to kind of depict some of the things that were at work and able to make that possible. So the key person in making this sponsorship deal come true was a newly appointed CEO at the time, Don Tatum. So Don Tatum, we have not really talked about very much in the past in any of these storytelling episodes. And that's mainly because we have not talked about this era too often in the mid to late 70s. Uh, Well, and even... We really haven't talked about the era right after Roy Disney's death in 1971. It's just never happened to come up previously. But Don served as the president of the Walt Disney Company under Roy from 1968 to 1971. Then when Roy passed away in 1971, Don stepped in to become the CEO and the first non-Disney family member to hold the title of the company. So. He was the president. Uh, So Roy, of course, took over after Walt passed away in 1966. And Don was kind of always the second man in in command for most of that time period. Um, And Don's story is very interesting because not only was he the first non-Disney family member to hold the title, but he was actually the most well-educated and kind of well-traveled executive that they had period. You know, a lot of their talent was homegrown talent. Imagineers that had come up that started working for Walt, you know, in their 20s, who maybe didn't even have college degrees at that time, but they worked their way up and they knew Walt's vision, or they worked under Roy on the financial side. And and that's how they had a lot of homegrown talent. But Don was someone from the outside that they brought in. So a little bit of his history is he grew up in Los Angeles and he earned a political science degree from Stanford and he was magna cum laude, which I was not anywhere close to any of those Latin titles. I think that means like a 3.5 or above GPA. Is that correct? I don't know. Catherine had a 4.0. I did. If if anybody didn't know that. What is that? Summa cum laude? You wouldn't know. You missed my graduation, (laughs) but... I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I was in Africa for your graduation. Anytime. Long story. But anyway, (laughs) um, so he graduated from Stanford. And then after that, he went to England to study at the very prestigious Oxford University, where he actually earned two law degrees. Now. What does one do with two law degrees? That's what I was going to ask. What? Why do you need two? I don't know. I'm wondering if he just liked it so much that he stayed long enough where they gave him two. Oh, my but, gosh. Yeah. Maybe it's like buy one, get one. Yeah. <laughs> but after he completed those two law degrees from Oxford, he came back to the U.S. and he came back to his hometown of Los Angeles and he fell into working for a law firm 
that specialized in entertainment law. And specifically, they worked with a lot of television companies or a lot of uh, auxiliary, I guess I would say, television companies. And, you know, that's where a lot of his early jobs happened. He made a lot of connections, of course, in that field, and he eventually made his way over into the television side of business and became the general manager of KABC TV in Los Angeles. And after that, he was the Western television director for all of ABC. And this is where I think, from what I understood, he knew Walton Roy before he got this title, just from his work in law in Los Angeles. But this is where he really got to know them pretty well because he was working closely with them at ABC. Eventually, as Walt and specifically Roy always did in this instance, was once they found someone that they liked, they wanted to bring them in. So they eventually convinced Don to come over and join the company as a, I think his first title was like an executive assistant in 1956. And what's important to note here is that almost all of his jobs fall under Roy's side of the business. He's very much a Roy guy and not a Walt guy. Isn't it funny that I feel like when you say that, everyone just automatically knows. You got the creative side, you got the business side, the money side, the playful side, the creative side. Like, it's funny. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we should replace as a society like type A and type B people or left side brain and right side brain people Uh and just say Walt and Roy because (laughs) it's a better uh, example. A real life example. For sure. So the real point of this story is that one of Don's clients when he was practicing law was actually RCA. Could you have predicted that from all of this? No, actually, I did not predict that. And it would be his old friends at RCA and his old acquaintances that he would eventually persuade in order to become the Space Mountain sponsors before construction began in 1972. So this is really just an example of he's an attorney, so he's very persuasive. He is a businessman because he works under Roy more than Walt. And I hope this kind of gives you a example of just kind of maybe how he was and that he built up all these really strong relationships over time. And that's how something like this was able to be built. The question kind of remains, you know, Walt was very persuasive, but uh, there's a lot of talk around this period that it's almost like nobody was able to pull off something this big besides Don Tatum. He was the right man for the right job at the right time. I mean, if he got a space mountain, he's got to be the right guy. So are you saying to, would he be responsible for maybe some of these other bigger sponsorships that we started to see at this time? Like, I feel like, especially when we research Epcot, there were a lot of sponsorship deals there. Yeah. Maybe he played a role in that. Yeah. So he worked a lot with um, Card Walker at this time, who he was leading up the Epcot project. And they were kind of the duo that would go after the Kodaks and the Coca-Colas and those big companies that could make their projects have the funding to be able to take place. And that kind of leads right into the next point that I want to make about Don Tatum and his time with Disney. 
if you follow a lot, and we've even talked about it a, a little bit on the podcast, but if you're familiar with Disney history, kind of all of the golden eras of the company, it's always what I like to call is like a yin and a yang, kind of what we just talked about. There's a Walt and there's a Roy to balance each other out. You see later in time period, you see the duo of Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. They work so well together and they balance each other out where one is able to dream big and the other is able to make it happen. To fund it all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, those are the, those are the two duos that stand out but the other one that I think gets lost in the history of all of this is Don Tatum and Card Walker. Because if you look at all of Don's tenure and all of his different positions with the company, from chairman to president and then to eventually CEO, every single time his spot was backfilled with Card Walker. And they were the duo that worked together. So he viewed... Roy as his mentor, but Card was his guy to make things happen. And he brought him along all the way through. So I can't remember the exact quote, but Walt has a lot of talk about this of you find your people and you bring them with you. You find the people that you trust and that you know have the same ambition and the same goals as you, and you bring them with you. And I think it's important to note that these are two very, very important people in a very, very critical time in Disney history after Walt has now been gone for six years at this point. Roy has been gone for a year, and it's a, a very, very difficult time. They have this huge new project in Florida that they're trying to take on, and I think it's important to... Uh, appreciate Don Tatum and Card Walker for what they did. So just to further illustrate this, I found a newspaper article from 1993 from the Orlando Sentinel when Don Tatum passed away. And they had uh, part of like his obituary, but also some quotes from people that worked with him that I thought would be interesting to share. So the article reads, Tatum, who died Monday at 80, was something of an enigma. According to Disney employees and those who knew him well, Tatum was cut more from the mold of Roy Disney, Walt's brother, whom Tatum replaced in 1971 to become the first non-Disney person to head up the company known for movies and theme parks. Both were behind-the-scenes financial types. When Tatum took the reins, there were many who feared that the Disney creative touch would be lost. Orlando's William H. Billy Dial was not among the doubters. Market analysts, shareholders, and critics need not have worried, says the former chairman of Sun First National Bank of Orlando, that Disney magic was in good hands. Later on, that same article goes on to say, Tatum may not have received the full credit he deserved for the Disney success story since 1971 because he worked quietly behind the scenes, allowing others to be in the spotlight. Despite his lack of charisma, Tatum is remembered as an executive who realized that any business success is measured by more than the bottom line. That's quite sweet. Although poor guy didn't have any charisma, but you know what this makes me think of? And this is such a, like a crazy random thought, but we just started watching Ted Lasso and it makes me think of kind of Ted Lasso's. I'll save you all the details. If you haven't watched it, you should, 
but that's kind of his theory too, is that we're all working together as a team. Like he might be the head coach, but he's not trying to take all the credit. It's a team effort and everyone's sharing. But Ted Lasso does have charisma. Well, yeah, I mean, he's Ted Lasso, but it made me think of the same thing. I would uh, implore anybody to really look up a lot of the history on Don Tatum because a lot of times we are enamored with the big, huge personalities of a Walt Disney, of a Michael Eisner, of a Bob Iger. They're, they're very charismatic. They're great at public speaking. But the, the other people, I mean, the Roys, the Don Tatums, Card Walker, I think, falls into this category a little bit as well, is that they're not necessarily making themselves the face of everything, but they are making sure that the right people are in the right place to make everything work. And that is just as valuable. It's just another way of going about the job. Now, I know some people might be thinking, is this going to lead into a discussion about the current leadership in Disney? No, it is not. Absolutely not. not. (laughs) We're not touching that with the 10 foot pole. This is a happy, fun place. Correct. So I think this, I wanted to share that because I think it gives us a great baseline to go into this storytelling just to know a little bit of the history and so that we have a, a good understanding of it. So as we previously mentioned, this is something that was so much deeper than we originally thought from a storytelling standpoint. At this point, I'm already, like, I'm good. I feel completely fulfilled with everything that we learned so far about Space Mountain. Because, again, we've said it a million times, I do think the history of everything can enhance the experience. Just knowing the background, I feel like, is very helpful. I would agree with that. But we're going to take it further. Right. We have to. So it is a story, as we previously mentioned, that is not as in-your-face but it is kind of a subtle story that does lend itself very well to Tomorrowland, I think. And to understand the story on a very deep level, I do think we need to understand the role of Tomorrowland. We have had a very, very long discussion about this in episode number 278. That was the storytelling of Cosmic Ray's Starlight Cafe. And we really focused on basically the big switch that happened with Tomorrowland in the 90s. To save you a little bit, the SparkNotes version of it is in the late 80s and early 90s, Tomorrowland was in really rough shape. Kind of the same thing that Walt dealt with with Tomorrowland in the late 50s and early 60s. It was past its prime, it had lost its luster, and it wasn't really depicting anything in the future. And so what they decided to do was what they called internally as New Tomorrowland. (laughs) <laughs> they use this a lot. New Fantasyland, New Tomorrowland. Which is always funny. I can't wait until they do like a new Frontierland. New Pandora. Yeah, like what? <laughs> Maybe we'll still be around when they do that. But um, instead of it being a community set in Tomorrow, which is what it originally was, they changed it that it's a community set in a Tomorrow that never was. Which and- is kind of mind trippy. It is, but the way you can look at it is that it's, if things had broken another way, this is what society could have looked like. And essentially, what it does is it future-proofs the area. Now, there are some people, and I and I fall into this camp as well, that say, it's not futuristic enough. But Disney's response to that would be like, well, it's not supposed to be depicting the future. 
It's just supposed to be depicting a different future. So what you're telling me is this is a multiverse? Correct. I can appreciate that. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, this is the beginnings of multiverses, of madness, if you will. So <laughs> <laughs> if you want to, again, hear that full conversation about everything at work to put that Tomorrowland switch in, that's episode number 278. Before we talk about the current story for this attraction, let's briefly talk about the stories under the different sponsorships because that does have a huge influence on how the story has been depicted over time. So under RCA, the original attraction focused on what they called, quote-unquote, the home of the future. And what they were essentially trying to do is show you how RCA would be integrated with their home entertainment systems in your home of the future. Which, I mean... I'm sorry. I love that they had the sponsorships and I think it's great that they got the funding that they needed. I mean, who doesn't love free money? But I have to say some of these early sponsorships and it's only going to get better from here were so odd. I mean, they were really a stretch. This is a stretch. How you can have a home of the future. And come on. Yeah. And what you are probably picking up on is that the main two areas where they put story in this attraction is in the queue and in the exit queue. The actual ride itself has not changed too much over time, but we'll get into the story of that when we talk about the current story. They changed it up slightly in 1985 when RCA signed a new deal to extend their sponsorship. And instead of depicting the home of the future, it was replaced with what they called RYCA1, or more commonly known as Dream of a New World, where there we saw the scenes they focused on space colonization and how RCA would be there with us in this new frontier. So I do think this was a correct change because it's more in line with what Walt was interested in, but and it's kind of more in line with what we have now. I was going to say, listening to that, sentence makes a lot more sense than how RCA would integrate in your home entertainment systems because we kind of see that. I know we're going to get to it, so I won't jump ahead, but I do kind of get that feeling, especially if you think about like the exit queue. Yeah. This update in 1985 would also introduce the attraction's first theme song titled We've Come So Far, and we'll play it now for anyone who remembers it and was around in the 1980s. I will preface it with This is recorded from 1985, so it's a little... It sounds like it's from the 80s. Yeah, so we will play that here, and I want you to listen to the rhythm and the melody. I'm not a music person, but if you can pick out... So you think those are the two things we're listening for? Yeah, I could be completely wrong, but try to listen for that. We've come so far, yet there's so very far to go. We've watched our dreams become reality. Tasted what the future holds in store for us, and realize that we hold all the keys. And tomorrow's filled with promise, stretch forever. The Oh, 
I mean, that song really sounds like a roller coaster. Oh, my God. Nothing gets me going. Like, how far we've come, or we've come so far. Are you bashing this song? I'm not bashing it. I do like the song. I thought the message is very nice. But when you're riding a roller coaster, if you just got off a roller coaster, where, I mean, I guess it's all about space colonization and exploration, but it isn't like... It's not like a Monsters After Dark, like get your blood going. So did you pick up on the rhythm or the undertones or anything like that? I, yeah, I picked up on like the undertones. And what would you, what does it remind you of? And I mean, I, I know I've heard something somewhere before. I don't know like the name of it. Okay, so what if I superimpose the current cue music over that song? Let's hear what that might sound like. Can you do that? Yep. Are you a DJ? Yep. Spin the wow. track. Okay, I'm ready. We've come so far, yet they're so very far. We've watched our dreams become reality. Things they thought the future holds in store for us. So, did you catch that? The stars? Yeah, so it's the cue music that we have now played behind the original song and they're the same right same melody same pacing same everything they basically just stripped out the lyrics and that led them to this song that we use now in the queue i do like the similarities but i have to say the stars i mean i don't know i'm not musically inclined so it sounds completely different to me i guess that's the point they upped it a little. Yeah. But I like the similarity. Good. Uh, I do have a confession. I didn't merge those two together. Someone on YouTube did. What the heck? So credit goes to them, but I didn't do it. Ugh. Well, I you, could, had, you could have had me fooled. I couldn't go on living a lie, but. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, but I do think that's a nice little nod. It's a nod to its past that is still there today. Do I get to talk about who came next? Yeah. Because this is the best, I mean, not the best part. I feel like my Walt part was the best part. But the next sponsor, I don't know how these two got connected or who was responsible for this deal. But when RCA left and FedEx took over in 1994, they decided to change the story, specifically in the post-ride queue. And what does FedEx do? Shipping. Come on. You don't think that space and shipping go together? Absolutely not. But so, it wasn't just focused on shipping, though, was it? Well, it was intergalactic shipping. See? Right on the nose. I mean, this, to me, is comical. What does a community of tomorrow that never was need? A shipping facility. A FedEx. It's all, <laughs> I don't know if where you live, you, got, you get the same flyers, but we just got a flyer in the mail from the U.S. Postal Service hyping up, sending mail during the holiday season. That made me giggle too, because the last thing we need is mail about sending mail. <laughs> this is like the same thing. Well. Intergalactic shipping. I don't think that was anyone's thought. I mean, Amazon wasn't even a thing right now. Who was thinking like, man, if I go to the moon, how am I going to send out my Christmas cards? 
FedEx. Well, FedEx is there for you. FedEx solved the problem for everybody. They did. A good Tennessee company there, too. Are they really? Memphis, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So, but there are some other things that came along with the changes with the FedEx sponsorship in 1994 that I think are welcome things. So, they brought SMTV, of course, standing for Space Mountain TV, and these were monitors that they set up through the queue running a TV channel that was supposed to be themed to Tomorrowland. So it had news, commercials, and other programs from the town that was supposed to be Tomorrowland. I like to think that maybe this is a nice little nod back to Don Tatum's with his time in television. Could it even be a little nod back to Disney in television? Could I be. I should say Walt Disney. To Walt Disney and the Disneyland series about space. Very well could be. Or it could just been something to get people to look at during the queue. That too. But, it, I, you know, again, this is kind of a stretch, but you now see something kind of similar in the Monsters, Inc. laugh floor where they are showing you a TV channel that's supposed to be all about Monstropolis. Mm-hmm. So I like that immersion level that they go through. So do you remember this? No. I don't remember this at all. No. So all this stuck around. We have a few other changes to get through, but it stopped in 2009 is when they changed it. Which we definitely should remember. Well, okay. So it, it the FedEx officially dropped in 2004, and they basically took from 2004 to 2009, they slowly stripped out the FedEx stuff, like mm. kind of one at a time type thing. And then 2009, it really went down for a refurb. But in 1994, the other big change that took place was the exit queue was rerouted to put you out through the newly built Tomorrowland light and power company arcade and gift shop, which is still where we have it today. Just not an arcade anymore. Sadly. Did you ever do that? No, sure. Me don't. neither. <laughs> um, so kind of what you were referencing is 2009 is when the huge refurbishment happened. It was estimated that they put around 12 to 12 and a half million dollars into the attraction to do it a complete, uh, not a complete change, but a lot of big changes. They did minor track replacement for areas that needed it. But this is where we got the interactive queue games. Now this I remember. Me too. So you had the different shapes and it was kind of like Galaga, I think is maybe the closest thing I would compare it to mm-hmm. for anybody who didn't get to experience it. I really liked them. I thought they were a lot of fun. I'm kind of sad every time we walk through there now and they don't have the interactive games. Well, it is sad because this was like a huge deal, like making all of these cues interactive. We talked about it before with like the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Um, we see it even in like the Haunted Mansion queue. Um, Peter, Peter Pan. Pan. Yeah, that's the other one that really stands out. And they just kind of shuffled this one away because of the Disney Play app. Have you ever seen anyone standing in line using the Disney Play app? The only time I see people using it is in Galaxy's Edge. Maybe we should try it sometime because I've never used it, but I would be very interested in trying it to see if they kept this kind of game. You just have to do it on your phone now. I had it on my phone and then I distinctly remember that I it got removed once and I looked to see why. And it said like, because you haven't opened this app in <laughs> so long, we deleted it off your phone. That's hysterical. The other things that happened during this $12 million refurb was they closed the roof on the load area and they got a new ceiling. So let's talk about the roof on the load area. Did you ever remember that you could look up and you could see 
people riding the roller coaster above you. Absolutely not. Me neither. That would be wild, though. Yeah. Like, that's I, pretty cool. I also didn't realize that's how the building laid out, was that the track is above the loading area. I mean, I guess it makes sense when you kind of think about it. But no, I would have never put those two things together either. So they decided to close it mainly due to light pollution. Mm-hmm. So they were tired of the light coming from the loading area and getting into the actual roller coaster portion of it. And so they closed it off. But I I don't know. I kind of think I missed the old version. I mean, it would be pretty cool. I wonder if, though, it turned a, a lot more kids around. You know what I mean? Like, what is the ratio of parents getting their kid to get on the attraction now versus then when you could see it and hear the screams? And, you know, not that they're terrible, like Haunted Mansion screams or anything. Who screams in Haunted Mansion? You've never been in a room where some 40-year-old guy screams during the part of the intro to like scare the children the stretching room yeah i mean i guess i have but i feel like every time it happens Hmm. someone's in there and screams because they think it's funny but like tower of terror has the fake screams so i mean that's sometimes i think yeah i think sometimes i think they like it anyway anyway i wish the ceiling was still open that's that's where i stand on the subject But uh, one more refurb that we have to go through, and then I promise we're ready to talk about the actual storytelling breakdown as it stands today. In 2018, we kind of uh, mentioned this a little bit, the interactive games were removed, as well as the speed walking ramp in the exit queue was removed. I, I, I do not agree with either of those decisions. I definitely do not. I really liked that speed walking ramp. I honestly, I can't think of anyone who didn't like the speed walking ramp. Why would you not like a speed walking ramp? Now, just listen to the people around you every time you ride, ride Space Mountain, because I've noticed it almost every time. People are like, how much longer do we have to go? I mean, it's a long walk. There's no denying that. Now, I'm pretty sure this has become the mantra of my life is thanks a lot, Tron. I'm pretty sure that's why they had to take it out. You think? They couldn't just give us a new one? Because they had to go slant it down a little bit to go underneath the rail. I mean, it always went underneath the railroad tracks, but I think they that's why. Because I mean, they definitely did something to it, like changed the route. And it was Tron's fault, right? We can blame Tron. Tron Tron is like the scapegoat for everything. Tron ruined this and our railroad. And our railroad. But we'll get the railroad back eventually. We may never get the loading, the speed walking railway move way. I don't know. What ramp? The, ramp. <laughs> railroad? No. You know what I meant. Oh, okay. So now let's talk about the storytelling of the ride as it stands today. Because there's a lot of little nuggets here that we were not aware of that I think will. The whole goal of this, we didn't mention at the beginning. Whole goal <laughs> is next time you ride this to enhance your experience, to give you a little bit deeper understanding of what the Imagineers are trying to tell you, and that's the goal. And I think that we can do that here. So once you enter into the queue, you have entered into Starport Seven Five. Now I cannot find a actual. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be read as Starport Seven Five, but you will hear a lot of people say Starport Seventy Five. It is in a reference to its opening year, but for the 
sake of how I understand it, I think I'm going to call it Starport 7-5 for the rest of the episode and the rest of time. I guess it sounds cooler, maybe. And this area, Starport 7-5, is also known as, quote-unquote, the gateway to the galaxies. And that's key. It's going to come in in just a second. The space station itself is known as Tomorrowland Station MK-1. And as you enter into the queue, you'll see a sign listing the other Earth-based stations here. Other ones that you can see are TL Space Station 77, as a reference to Tomorrowland and 1977 when Disneyland's Space Mountain opened. Discovery Landing Station Dash Paris. That's the lamest one. That is super lame. Ashita Station Dash Tokyo and HK Spaceport E-TKT. So obviously Hong Kong Spaceport and then it's a nod to E-Ticket. I thought that's what I was going to guess, but I didn't want to say anything at the sake of getting it wrong. So it is subtle, and I don't want to overthink this, but what this is implying here is that all of the Tomorrowlands, and I'm including Discovery Landing in this as well from Disneyland Paris, is that they are connected, and they do exist in the same universe because they are... Same multiverse? (laughs) No, this... (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess. But this is... They're showing you that you can use get from here to there using our space travel services, which I think opens your mind up to a lot of different possibilities of what could be done. It's kind of a similar thing if you, if you on a very basic level, Star Tours kind of does something similar. Well, as soon as you said you're being connected to other galaxies, if that's not the first thing you thought of, then I don't know where you're at. The other thing, again, I don't want to get too far off base, but this was the original idea for Galaxy's Edge, is that they would be two different places. They they weren't supposed to be Batu in Disneyland and in Walt Disney World. No, they are a Batu West and a Batu East, Brendan. Well, that that's correct, but that's I think uh, fan fiction. I would agree, as you would say. Uh, the 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 better example I think to look at now is Avengers Campus. So when it opens in Disneyland Paris, it is going to be Avengers Campus Europe. And the one in DCA is Avengers Campus North America. So they are doing that there, of of sort of interconnecting them and acknowledging that they exist in the same space, whereas Batu East and West are not to be seen as existing in the same space. Make sense? I'm following. You with me? Mm Mm-hmm. So... From there, you pass through the Star Tunnel. This is where you most notably hear the nice, fun music that we played with the cue music. And there's portals there that allow you to look out amongst the stars. From there, you enter into the loading station that's known as Mission Control. And there are two different loading stations, the Alpha Track and the Omega Track. So they weren't able to do four like Walt wanted, but they were able to do two, at least in Walt Disney World. Alpha and Omega. And one of them is like one foot longer than the other one, but I actually can't remember which one it is. Yeah, I thought it was like 10 feet longer. I mean, it's not a lot to actually know, but one is longer than the other. I don't remember either which one it is. So someone can look that up and look that up next time you're in line and you can ask to go on that one to get more 
bang for your buck. More ride time. Yeah. They probably won't let you because they're pretty strict about where they want you to go. Yeah, one time we tried to switch and they yelled at us. We, yeah. Anywho. <laughs> so after you board your rocket on either track, you enter into what they call the super space tunnel. And what this is doing, we lovingly call it the toaster oven, which... I've never called it that. Oh, I call it the toaster oven because that's what it seems like. But anyway, what that is actually depicting is your rocket is harnessing energy in order to blast you into space. That's like your light jump. What do they call it? Space jump? What do they call it in Star Wars? Light speed? Light speed. Yeah. I mean, you're just kind of gaining energy at this point. So you're going a little bit slower and you're getting ready to make your climb. And that's what gives you enough energy to go there. You then whip through space, of course, like we're familiar. So there's different meteors and different things that you have to avoid as you're traveling through space. And then eventually you come back to Earth through the second toaster oven, as I call it. Apparently not you. And this is depicting a red wormhole. And this is how you get back to the Tomorrowland station. Now, did you ever realize that was a wormhole? No, because it looks the exact same as the beginning one. It's just like a big red tunnel. As you get into the exit queue, this is where the story really starts to take shape and make a little bit more sense. We kind of talked about it in the past iterations, but as it currently stands, the first kind of area is depicted as a baggage claim area and a couple little Easter eggs to look out for. There are two references to an extinct Disney attraction in Horizons. So there are on the luggage, there are stickers from travelers who went to Space Station X-1 and Mesa Verde. So, Are those from Horizons? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, next, what they're depicting is they're showing you ads for different places that they can take you through space travel um, from Spaceport 75. This includes the Red Rock Canyons of Mercury Peak Intergalactic Park, Crater Caverns, or a submarine voyage 20,000 light years under the sea. Nice little nod back to 20,000 leagues under the sea. Other ones are the coral moons of Pisces 7, and uh, there's other ones that you can see. But it is supposed to be depicting maybe something that you would see in a modern-day airport of here are our different area attractions or here's different things that you can see using our services. I like the, I like the baggage claim. Yeah. Uh, and my favorite joke of all time that I will never forget, I got Catherine with this one. Oh, my and God. And I give everyone permission to use it. But you really... Not on me. You can really only use it once. But as you're passing the scene with the dog, as you're walking out, say to your favorite or your least favorite family member or friend... Which so, one do I fall into? We'll leave that up to the imagination. Favorite. Thank you. Um, say to them, hey, if you bark at the dog, he'll bark back. And Catherine barked out loud at the dog, expecting it to bark back. It seems like something that would happen in Disney World. If you bark at the dog, it would bark back at you. I love a good woofity dog. I actually don't think I came up with that. I think I saw it in a vlog or something. So well, I'm not taking you're credit welcome. For it. But uh, yeah, I thought I'd show I'll that. I'll never hear the end of that. 
it was maybe the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It was not. It was so good. Um, so one other little piece that I think is nice to tidy up this story and depict that you have just experienced space travel and, you know, this is a real operating space station, is that in their control center in the post-show scene, they have a lot of references to other attractions and it's funny how they do it. So they have open sectors and closed sectors. I'm not going to share all of them because I want next time you go, take a picture of it and tell us which ones you could figure out and which ones you couldn't because they're all kind of coded. But the open depict things that are currently operating in Magic Kingdom. Closed are the um, extinct attractions. So just for an example, they have AL-AFC. That stands for the Magic Carpets of Aladdin. So can you, what do you think AL stands for? Aladdin. Adventureland. Adventureland. AFC. I don't know what AFC means, actually. Yeah, that's a super weird one. Aladdin flying carpet? Oh, yeah. It has to be. Yeah. Another one, FRL-SM. Do you know which one that might be? Frontierland Splash Mountain. Correct. And just to do one in the closed sectors, how about FL-MTWR? This one is harder. I have the answers in front of me. Frontier, no, Fantasyland, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Yep. You do really have to think about it. Yep. So all those are listed up. Don't cheat. Next time you're in Space Mountain, take a picture. Tell us which ones you can get. Tell us just honestly how many of them that you're able to get. I mean, they're pretty tricky, especially because Frontierland and Fantasyland both start with FL. And I will say some of the closed sectors are a little obscure. They're not the most commonly known extinct attractions. Some of them we have never even talked about on this show. Some of them I didn't know existed. Well, I guess that would make it difficult. (laughs) So, uh, and that basically concludes the story. So it's, it is deeper than I thought. It's not the deepest of every attraction. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. It's it, it can't match up to a Haunted Mansion or a Big Thunder Mountain or something where there is a very rich and deep backstory. But I do think if you look through it of the lens with the history that you talked about with Walt's connection to space and then with Don Tatum's, uh, um, the way that he was able to incorporate and bring this all together through the lens of the role that this plays into Tomorrowland, I think it is deeper than I thought it was. But I don't want to sell the story short completely because I do think there is substance here where it is kind of a big ask. I think a lot of that has to do with, unfortunately, the name of the attraction. Like Space Mountain doesn't really give you a lot to work with. You don't really have a lot of expectations going into it other than you're getting in a rocket ship and it's going to be dark. I feel like that's kind of the baseline thing that most people know walking into the ride. A lot of the things that we talked about are pretty subtle. You know, all of these, you know, codes with these open sectors and everything, that's very hidden. And that's even hard for like big Disney people like us to even pick up on. Like if you are just, you ride the ride, you get off the ride, you leave, you miss the whole thing. So I do think there's a story here. I think it's a little more understated, but if you can pick up on it, it is pretty immersive. 
I would agree. I mean, it's taking you through a whole beginning, middle, end. And I, even dropping you off in Tomorrowland where you can continue. I would agree. So I think the only thing that I can put in the con column and the thing that I think most people will get lost in is there's no transformation. You know, we talk a lot about the ask. What is asked of us as the guest in order to understand the story and what it's telling us? There, The ask takes place whenever you enter the queue. You're just supposed to believe at that point that you're in space. It's not something like a Space 220. I know it's, it, you know, it's 40 years after the point. Technology has changed so much. But there, they're actually showing you, okay, we are taking you from Epcot and putting you 220 miles in the sky and putting you up. They don't do that here. You just walk in and you're, and it's supposed to be believed that now that you're looking at the portals and you see space. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe my only quarrel with it. Or qualm? What's their word? Qualm? I think it's qualm. But I do agree. I mean, maybe at the time, having the portals with the stars and kind of that immersive feature, you know, in the 70s might have been a bigger deal than what it is today. Kind of like you said, with some of the new technology and just the expectation or the hype of some of the rides, like there isn't a pre-show to kind of get you in the mindset that you need to have walking into it. And I even think back, I, I have honestly only been on Mission Space once in my entire life, but I have watched videos of it. That is a very good pre-show. You know? I, I don't know, because I've oh. only done it once also, but I'll take your word for it. But they do do a good job of prepping you for what's to come. I, You know, I would love to see a new iteration of this, of putting back in some of the TV screens or something just to kind of prep you for what is going to happen. It doesn't mean you have to have a mission. It doesn't mean there has to be a obstacle or there's not a asteroid coming down to hit you like in dinosaur. But there could be little advertisements, little things that they've incorporated into the exit queue that maybe they could do beforehand. Which the one that stands out to me the most is Soren. Just do something like Soren where they basically you know, saying we, this is a this is a service that we're providing. Mm-hmm. Like you're in our terminal, you're in our space station, and and I think it would help a lot more people realize that there is a story there because maybe we're the minority. But I went into this for uh, I guess the first twenty eight years of my life, <laughs> not knowing that there was actually a there's a beginning, middle, and end to this. I would agree. And I think that's why we put it off so long. I think that's why it made it until episode 330. I mean, it's Space Mountain. It's a big icon for the park. It is an e-ticket attraction, considering for Genie Plus, you have to pay for it. I mean, it's kind of a big deal. And we always put it on the back burner because we didn't just want to talk about riding a rocket in the dark. You know, it didn't sound appealing. We've learned now that there's more to it. But surface level, that's what a lot of people think. I will be, and I don't. We don't have to spend too much time on this. We've already been going a while. But do you want to theorize? Does Tron opening take the pressure off of Space Mountain, where they can take it to the next level? 
where they could do something like a hyperspace mountain like they have in Disneyland Paris or like putting the music into the seats like they have in Disneyland. You know, do you think they would ever take that opportunity to do a major reverb or would they just want to start from scratch instead? Start from scratch and tear it down? I'm, I, who knows? Oh, I don't know about that. But I do think it gives them the opportunity to maybe do another pretty big refurbishment. Now, I don't know if they'll want to, since I can imagine Tron is costing them a pretty penny and everything else that they're going to do with Epcot. So they might just want to, you know, kind of clean their hands and be done. I mean, can you imagine a Space Mountain refurb is probably going to take time from our train coming back? We don't want that. So... I don't necessarily know, and I don't know enough about Paris either because I haven't ever researched it. I know it's supposed to be super cool, but I don't know. I mean, I am a sucker for the originals, and if it is the original in Magic Kingdom, you do hate to lose that. I don't want to lose it, but I do think it. it's one of those things. It, it is timeless. There, It will never not be cool to ride a roller coaster in the dark. Mm-hmm. But in the age of immersion... You know, that's this new era that we're in. It's all about immersion. Does it stand the test of time? I don't know. I don't know if the next generations will love it as much as we do because, like, this was my first roller coaster. My first big roller coaster, I guess I should say. Now, kids ride Seven Dwarfs Mine Train and Slinky Dog probably before this. But growing up, this was, this was a big one for me. It was daunting. And I mean, I, it is daunting being I, in the dark. I just don't think it's viewed that same way anymore. Maybe it is, but I suspect that it may not be. I still love it. We'll always love it. I think it's tied with me, Haunted Mansion and Space Mountain, are my two favorite attractions. That's big. Big indeed. So any other thoughts that you have as we wrap up Space Mountain storytelling? I don't think so. I think maybe this will be the one the attraction that we researched to finally put the nail in the coffin of we can't judge a book by its cover. Maybe we have to go into every storytelling episode knowing that there's going to be a deeper meaning because if space mountain can have all these cool facts and history, I feel like anything could. I would agree with that. So hopefully you guys can tell that we really like to take our time and and really understand the history and the storytelling of these attractions. If you do, we'd love to see it shared on social media or just give us a hand clap or something. (laughs) We we just love to get feedback and know if you guys enjoy this kind of episode. The best thing you can do is give us an iTunes review is the best way to help the the podcast grow. We really, really appreciate that. Two other things that we have offered and available for you if you are looking to book your next Disney vacation, definitely reach out to our friend Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. You can reach the link to her free quote in the show notes below or just follow her on social media. She always keeps everybody up to date on everything happening. She she tells us where all the good food is. So She tells us everything. We're, Events, we're what's always, happening. We're always appreciative of that. And if you want to reach that next level of storytelling with us, we are doing that over on Patreon. You'll get the show notes from this episode for one. In addition, you'll get bonus episodes 
each and every month among some other offerings that we're offering over there. If you'd like to check it out, that's patreon.com slash detour to Neverland. So thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back on Monday with a brand new episode, and we can't wait to chat with you then. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.